Do you know what the most uh, desired, traded, largest commercial spice is on the planet? Pepper. Pepper. You don't say salt and cinnamon, do you? Salt and nutmeg? <laughs> you say salt and pepper. Uh, all over the world, pepper is the most popular of all the spices and the most desirable. And it's not just now. It's been that way for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, salt, of course, is essential to life. Uh, but right after salt, in terms of just desired flavoring, people want pepper. Um, I was taught way back uh, whenever that was, uh, third, fourth, fifth grade somewhere, um, that uh, that was the reason uh, Columbus was uh, looking for a shorter trade route to the spice, uh, you know, spice areas, was to find pepper. Uh, well, I think he had more in mind than pepper, and uh, there's probably some uh, gold and silver thrown in on top of that as well, and maybe some other things that weren't politically acceptable, so they didn't mention it in the fifth grade. But um, uh, Columbus was out for a lot more than pepper, but that was certainly a motivator. Uh, unfortunately, he got his math wrong after he uh, had, got shipwrecked the first time and ended up uh, floating back to Portugal on a board. Um, he studied mathematics and astronomy. I found that kind of amazing because he... Um, he studied mathematics, but he didn't calculate the curvature of the earth uh, quite exactly right, and he got the uh, circumference significantly wrong. Had he been able to look at a map like I did this week just by calling it up on Google, um, he would have known that it was four times further to go west <laughs> to get to the uh, area of India than it would have been to go east the way everyone else was going. Of course, there was an entire continent in the way, and well, you know that story. But, um, but pepper is number one, and it's the, the prime motivator of all the spices. Guess what number two is on the list? No. But you like cinnamon, don't you? Yeah, I figured that was a, that was a good guess. It's mustard. Number two on the list is mustard. People after pepper want mustard. Mustard is an interesting uh, herb or spice. Um, it has a lot of medicinal value. It has a lot of folklore uh, impact. It has a lot of flavor value. It can be used in many, many ways. Um, mustard is a warming spice. Um, in fact, if you put it directly on your skin, it'll really warm you. It'll burn your skin. Um, but if you make a poultice out of it, uh, it will help uh, with your congestion when you have a cold. Uh, and it'll help clear your lungs. It'll help you sweat out toxins. Um, if you uh, fold it up between layers of, of flannel and uh, moisten it just enough and put it over uh, sore, achy knees, uh, it will relieve pain. I even learned that it relieves gout. Uh, next time I have a gout episode, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some mustard on hand. I'm grind it up and put mustard on my feet. <laughs> then put them back in my uh, buns, I mean my shoes. But um, anyway, uh, mustard is a fascinating spice. And um, 
One of the things that's interesting about mustard is it grows fairly large to start out so small. If you have a single mustard seed in your hand, it's about the size of a pinhead. It is spherical, but it's very, very tiny. Now, when Jesus said in another place that uh, the mustard seed was the smallest of all seeds, he was not making a biological scientific statement in that uh, expression. He was talking about the common knowledge of people who planted gardens, planted uh, wheat, planted uh, herbs and spices and things in their gardens. Of all the domestic seeds, of all the cultivated plants, of all the different things that they used, the mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds. It was smaller than any other thing that they attempted to uh, purposely grow. And yet, uh, when the mustard plant grows, it has a surprising uh, growth. And uh, while it's typically about this high when it's uh, ready for harvesting, uh, a mustard shrub or herb can grow up to about eight feet. That's pretty big. So if you plan to plant one in your garden, uh, be aware of that. Uh, it could take over. You've got to give it some ample room. And so in Luke chapter 13, as Jesus is uh, trying to get the, his Jewish audience to understand what the kingdom of God is like, uh, to understand his mission and his purpose and, and to sort of begin to put it together, he wants them to be aware that their ideas of the kingdom do not exactly align with the way it's actually going to unfold. Now, the Jewish audience um, were students of the prophets. They read and studied their, their Bible thoroughly. They understood uh, a lot of the promises, and they knew that a Messiah was coming. They were looking for a Messiah. Somehow or another in the process, they had overlooked all of the um, prophecies about a suffering servant, about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, about uh, Isaiah 53. They had somehow missed all of those kinds of things, but they were really looking forward to the King, the Messiah that would triumphantly uh, bring them a glory and grandeur and restore uh, Israel not only to the glory days of Solomon, but even beyond that period of time, and uh, come rushing in and overthrow the Gentiles and reestablish them as God's chosen people in God's chosen place and, and set up a kingdom that would uh, provide all of their uh, temporal and material needs like they desired. And Jesus is, is seeking to bring them to an understanding through various types of confrontation and uh, thought-provoking statements that this is not the way the kingdom is going to come. And so, he tells them these two parables. He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, verse 18. He says, a man took it and threw it into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, the interesting thing about the statement is that while a mustard seed grows into a fairly large shrub, I mean, it, as I said, it can get to be eight feet tall. Uh, typically, it's about three or four feet, but it can grow much larger than that. 
it generally doesn't turn into a tree. A tree is a much bigger kind of element. And I think Jesus is intentionally using hyperbole or exaggeration here to kind of startle them. He, he does this, and he wants to get their attention. He wants them to think about what he's saying. Uh, you take this tiny little seed that's about the size of a pinhead, and you plant it in the soil of the garden, and it turns into a tree. Uh, a tree that provides uh, nesting for the birds of the air, a tree that provides shade, a tree that provides uh, rest and relief. He says the kingdom of God is like that. And it doesn't happen just overnight. It takes a while for the mustard plant to grow. But as it grows, it develops in unexpected proportions. If you can imagine that early band of disciples, 12 of them plus another 108 followers in an upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, 120 people out of the population of the whole world. 120 people in Jerusalem out of the whole world's landmass. 120 people upon whom the Holy Spirit came in power and they became witnesses. That what started out quite unexpectedly as being insignificant, immediately grew to 3,000, and then 5,000 more. And then, by the end of the first century, the message of Christ had spread all over the Roman Empire, and uh, extra-biblical sources tell us that Thomas had even carried it as far as India. And then, by the end of the fourth century, despite the persecution and the effort, first of the Jews and then of the Romans, to completely obliterate Christianity from the face of the planet. By the end of the 4th century, Christianity was the official religion of Rome. And the saying was of Rome, your temples are empty, because so many people had, at least uh, in name, responded uh, to the message of the Christian gospel. Not uh, long after that time, the gospel sped, spread north into Europe and south into uh, North Africa and continued to spread to the east. And there is even some archaeological evidence, long before Columbus thought of it, that uh, Christianity had uh, migrated all the way to the Americas, whether that came through uh, the northern straits, uh, through uh, Mongolia and Russia, Siberia, and into Alaska and down or whether uh, some of those enterprising uh, Vikings or their their kind had figured out how to navigate the Atlantic Ocean uh, long before we knew anything about it, uh, there there is evidence of uh, Christianity in terms of articles that have been found in the Mississippi River Delta. Um, Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will spread to all the world, and then the end will come. And as we read Revelation, we find that in that moment when uh, the kingdom is gathered, when Jesus returns for his bride, there will be representatives there of every tongue and every tribe and every nation. It's not going to come rushing in, he's saying to the people, uh, like some uh, tidal wave that comes 
crashing in upon the scene and overthrows the Roman government and brings instant glory to Israel. But like a tiny beginning of a mustard seed, it's going to grow until it becomes this uh, unexpected tree that uh, provides rest and nurture uh, in ways that were not imagined. And then he says, in a similar vein, it's like a woman who took um, my New American Standard text as three pecks of flour. She took leaven and headed in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Uh, everyone knows what a peck is, right? Right? <laughs> you know, a bushel and a packet. No, no. That's, uh, I, I grew up with pecks. They were littler baskets than the bushels, uh, you know, because uh, my grandparents were um, at heart uh, farmers and uh, garden growers. When I say garden, I'm talking several acres, not your little victory garden in the backyard. But, uh, you know, so I kind of grew up with the different sizes. But to put this in perspective, in, in our contemporary terms, the Greek uh, unit of measure here that is recorded by Luke um, amounts to approximately a 50-pound sack of flour. Now, it was common in those days to make your daily bread. You'd make bread in the morning for the family usually uh, kind of a flat bread, sort of like a pita or, or a taco or something. You make a flat bread in the morning, and uh, that would be your bread for the day. And you would do that every day so that it would be fresh. And Wow, can't you just smell that morning breakfast? Wouldn't that be wonderful to, to have the fresh, warm bread every morning? Wow, I, can, I could get into that, but anyhow. Um, but no one would leaven 50 pounds of wheat flour, my goodness. First of all, can you imagine trying to manage it? I mean, they didn't have big commercial mixer bowls. They did this by hand. And can you imagine trying to knead 50 pounds of flour and, and uh, putting in the leaven and setting it aside so it would rise? And uh, think of what your kitchen would be as 50 pounds of flour begins to rise. You know, Jesus, again, is using exaggeration. He's using the unexpected. He's saying the kingdom of God is like leavening this, this amount of flour. And, and suddenly it grows to proportions. It rises to proportions that you never anticipated. And so the kingdom of God is going to be a gradual process on the one hand, but it is going to result in unexpected ways and proportions on the other until eventually the whole world has been affected by the kingdom. Um, I, I just remind us this morning as we think about that, that a lot of times we want things to happen right now. You know, we want them to happen right away. Uh, I want instant uh, results. And um, we've been conditioned by the one-hour TV programs to... Solve a whole crime, you know, in 40 minutes if you take the commercials out uh, or a sitcom or whatever that resolves the problem. It's not going to be like that. The kingdom of God, while it is effective, while it is powerful, while it makes a difference, is a kingdom that is going to go one person at a time, one place at a time, 
one nation at a time until it has filled the earth. And then uh, in that harvest time, Jesus is going to come back. And so uh, Luke tells us in verse 22 that as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem, someone says to him, Lord, are there just a few that are going to be saved? Now, we kind of drop in on this. Remember what Lucas said? He's going from one village to another and he's been teaching. And we don't know all the teaching that has gone on, but uh, and it could have been that Jesus, you know, had talked about the uh, narrow way and few that find it, the broad way, and many that, that go that way, but it leads to destruction. We don't know what the background is, but somewhere in the process, one of the people that were uh, listening to him uh, poses this question. Are there just a few that are going to be saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you're from. <laughs> then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience and he's making his way toward Jerusalem where his ministry will culminate in the crucifixion. And, of course, in the resurrection. And as he is moving along, um, he says to this Jewish audience, here, here is my answer. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, I, I broke this down into five phrases that perhaps you can remember. The criteria, the urgency, the panic, the relationship, and the tragedy. The criteria is, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, at first blush, you might think that he's saying work hard for salvation. And that's not what he's saying. People have a tendency to take a single verse of Scripture and rest it out of context, not only the local and immediate context, but also uh, take it out of the context of the of the New Testament or the whole Bible, and and make it a standalone item. The Bible is very plain in its teaching. It's very clear that salvation is not a result of works. Ephesians two eight and nine says, "For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is a gift of God, not as a result of works." that no one should boast. 
And so the scripture plainly teaches it is not on the basis of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his grace, his mercy, that he has saved us. And so salvation is clearly presented as a gift of God that is mediated to us by grace, uh, by faith, through grace, that this is how he operates. And yet, there comes a moment in our lives when we are confronted with the choice. We're going along our merry way, and all of a sudden we become aware that there is a narrow door. And the door is open and the invitation is given to move through that door. And in that moment, it requires a great deal of sobriety, a great deal of intent, of desire, uh, that we, that we look at the opportunity for what it is. Not long after I moved here, uh, back in 1985, I was uh, asked to go to a pastor's conference. Uh, and I went to this uh, conference. It was not hosted by the Christian Missionary Alliance, but it was just for, for uh, regional um, pastors. And I listened to a keynote speaker spend an entire hour telling us that repentance was a work and it was not a part of salvation. That salvation was based merely on the intellectual agreement that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That all that was required to be saved was to confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ had died on the cross for us. To believe that. And we would be saved. I should say I endured an hour (laughs) of the keynote speaker. Uh, fuming in my seat that such heresy was being promulgated. Because James says that even the demons believe and they tremble. They're not going to be saved, but they know the facts. They know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of human beings and paid the price. And that is not going to move them one inch toward heaven. And so, the question comes back, what is the requirement? Well, it's not mere intellectual assent. Simply agreeing with the historical facts does not make you a Christian. In fact, the requirement is that when we are confronted with this opportunity to go through this narrow door, it involves a number of things that impact us. Somebody kill that cricket, would you? Um, it involves... A, sorry. I just couldn't pass that up. Um, it involves a number of things that include, first of all, the conviction of our sin. Jesus said in the Holy Spirit when He comes, He will convict the world of sin 
and righteousness and judgment. There must be a conviction of our sin. We must be aware of the fact that we have sinned against the Holy God. And with that conviction comes the righteousness that He is holy and the judgment that we are not and we're going to have to face Him. It is, it is impossible for me to conceive of anyone truly coming to faith in Jesus Christ without, you know, stepping through the awareness that they are a sinner in need of salvation and that they need forgiveness and they need to be at peace with God. That's a part of the problem. And so with the conviction, with the awareness of the opportunity comes the knowledge uh, the illumination that we have sinned and we need peace with God. We need to make it right. And we can't. And only through Jesus Christ can we be forgiven. Can we be cleansed? Can our sins be covered and paid for? And, and that's the beginning part. And then there's the appropriation by faith. Not only do I have to come to that awareness, but yes, I do have to believe. I have to believe that what He did on the cross is adequate and sufficient for my sin. That He truly can cover my sin. Because there is salvation in no other name and in no other way. I can't work for it. I can't add to it. I can't insult Him by trying to beef up the work that He has already done. When He was on the cross and He made the payment, He said, it is finished. The debt is paid. This is all that is required. And so I have to enter into the confidence by faith that what He did on the cross is sufficient. But then, more than that, as I reach out to Him, I must repent of my sin. It's not just enough to say, I know I'm a sinner. It's, it, we have to go the next step and say, and I know that's wrong, and I don't want to live there any longer. I want to go a different way. Repentance at its root means to change the mind. I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm no longer going to do my thing. I regret the things I've done. For some reason or another, um, I have a number of albums and songs uh, in my phone, and they uh, play through my car system when I'm in the car. And for some reason or another, um, Steve Green, uh, the faithful, has just kept coming up again and again and again. Uh, and the number of his songs, remember that one that I shared with you years ago, The River, some of you that were here? That's on there. But one of the songs on there is, is I Repent. And in that, in that he says, uh, you know, I, I repent. I turn away from my stubborn ways. I can't blame anyone else. I, I can't make any excuses. I repent. And I turn back to you that I might love you alone. He, he wants to make that transition. Repentance is a turning away from my will, my sin, my ways, my desires, and turning to Him. And then in that turning, there must be a commitment. Lord, I believe. Belief in Scripture is not merely an intellectual assent, not the way that it's used in the Gospels. Believe means to commit. 
I commit my life to Him as my Lord and as my Savior and my Redeemer. I follow Him. I'm going after Him. You go through the door and you join His path and you follow Him. That is the process of salvation. It's not a work, but it is a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of attitude, a change of soul, a commitment to Jesus Christ, an acceptance of the payment that He made is sufficient, a receiving of the, of the life of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, and a desire to follow Him all the rest of my days. Now, on His part, He agrees to forgive and to cleanse and to cover our sin, and He agrees to hold us fast in His hands and to keep us safe until the end. Paul says, I know uh, that I, what I have committed to Him, He is faithful and able to keep until that day. I know that He is able to keep me. He is able to hold me. I rest in Him. But it's because He has reached out and embraced. So when Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door, he, He's telling us that there's more involved in here than just skipping across the threshold. It's a thoughtful focused, committed response that requires a pause in our life and it changes our lives forever. And then he emphasizes the urgency to this questioner. He says, not only must you strive to enter the narrow door, because he says there's going to come a moment when the master gets up and closes the door. And when that moment comes and that door is closed, you're going to find yourself on the outside of it if you have not entered in. Time is running out. For the Jewish people, time was running out very quickly. Time runs out in different seasons and in different places in different ways. The Scripture says, take care that being often reproved, you don't stiffen your neck in constant rebellion and hold back and refuse the truth because the day may come when you will be suddenly cut off without remedy. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Your own time may run out. And then there's the reality that one day this world's time is going to run out. The clock is ticking, and there will come a day when the master closes the door. And unless you're on the inside, you're shut out forever. As he dines with those in the kingdom, there is a great urgency to this decision. And when that door is closed, panic sets in because there are people on the outside that thought they should have been on the inside and they're going to be knocking on the door saying, open up to us. And the master is going to look outside and say, I don't know who you are. I, I, I never knew you. And they're going to say, well, how could that be? We dined with you. We drank with you. We... We heard your teaching in the streets. We, we were around you all the time. How could that be? And he says, I'm sorry, I, I don't know who you are. Matthew tells us that there, in that moment he'll say, I never knew you. And that leads me to the fourth point that the relationship is crucial. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Now and throughout history, there have been Jesus groupies. You know what I mean by that? They hang out around Jesus, or the church, or the Jesus people. They like it. 
You know, I feel good when I'm in church. I think I'll join the church. They may even get baptized. They, they may even contribute to the offering. They may come regularly. Uh, if, if they're in this Jewish audience, they may say, hey, I, uh, I, I'd like to be a Pharisee. If I can't be a Pharisee, I'd like to be a synagogue president. If I can't be that, I'd like to, I'd like to just study the scriptures. I'd like to get, I, I, I'm, I'm a part of the Jewish race. I'm a part of the heritage of Abraham. I belong in this kingdom. And Jesus' point in this passage, and it's so vitally important that we get this, knowing about Him is not knowing Him. People can hear, they can, they can like what they hear, they can uh, feel good when they sing songs, they can like being around God's people, but Jesus said there will be intermingled with the wheat tares that will grow together till the end of the age. And in the church, there will always be a mixture. I'm aware as I speak to, to, to you every Sunday. I think I know you. I hope I know you. I believe that the vast majority of you know Him. But some of you may not. And I'm not suggesting that I know who you are. I don't know who you are. I may be surprised when I'm sitting down with Jesus at the banquet table and you're not there. I may wonder what happened. All those years they attended church, they... Good sermon, Pastor. Boy, the worship was great this morning. Boy, I'll get involved and do this, that, and the other. But at the end of it all, there was never a change of heart, a change of life, a change of mind, a change of spirit. There was never commitment to know Him. And knowing Him means having a relationship with Him, being uh, walking with Him, talking with Him, experiencing Him, knowing Him. Can you look in your life and point back to different times when you know that out of your relationship with Jesus Christ, He has met you and responded to you and you have known the intimacy that He invites you to? I've seen him at work in my life in, in, in so many ways through the years. And sometimes even when I'm wrong, <laughs> I'm aware of him because his spirit strives with me. You know, he, he reminds me, he draws me back, he contends with me. Uh, sometimes the very fact of, of conviction is the, is the manifestation of his presence because I'm his child. I belong to Him. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and they follow Me. Do you, do you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus in your life? Do you follow Him? Does He show you the way to go? Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we have received a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. You notice I said to you that 
I, I may be dining with Jesus and find that you're missing. You say, how can you be that arrogant and have that kind of assurance? Uh, isn't that uh, sort of uh, uh, too bold? But John, in his first letter, says, I've written these things to you uh, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What things? I've given you the proofs. I've given you the test. Examine your life. Are you in fellowship with the Father? Do you know Him? Do you, do you have a transformation in your heart so that you uh, don't uh, want to sin? You don't want to go in rebellion? That you're drawn to the ways of God? And do you have within your heart the evidence of His presence that responds to others in love? How can someone say, I love God whom He has not seen if He doesn't love His brother whom He has seen? There's evidence. You can see it. Someone asked the question, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? Can they prove it? And John says, I've told you these things so that you can know that you have eternal life. Do you know Him? Or do you merely know about Him? And the tragedy is that there are those at the end, many of them in fact, who will say, I thought I belonged there. And they're going to be surprised. Uh, Matthew in his Gospel puts it this way. He says as they come to the end, uh, they're going to hear the Master say to them, I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you offered me no clothes. I was in prison, I was sick, you never visited me. And they're going to say, Lord, what are you talking about? We never saw you in any of those conditions. And he will say to them, but you did see people in those conditions. You saw hungry people, you saw thirsty people, you saw inadequately clothed people, you saw people in prisons, and you saw people in sickness, and you did not reach out to them. And I say to you that because you did not do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. Because if I had been in your life, you would have responded differently. You would have moved out in love. My presence would have been flowing through you. There would have been demonstration in your actions. Because you had a cold heart, indifferent heart. He says, it's proof that you don't know me. Depart from me. I never knew you either. You workers of iniquity. Jesus answers the man's question in a strange way. Are you sure uh, that there's only going to be a few that end up in the kingdom that are going to be saved? You can infer the answer from his long response. Well, yes, there are only going to be a few. But he didn't directly answer the question. What he said instead was, what's really important here is that you be among them. That you be one of them. Don't miss the opportunity 
you make certain that you're one of them. Are you one of them? Do you know Him? Do you know for sure that you have eternal life? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is it your desire, the desire of your heart? Is it what motivates you that you may know Him and the power of His resurrection? Is that what's going on inside of you manifesting itself in a changed life because you have a relationship with the living God? Or are you just the Jesus groupie? Very big, very important question. Father, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you would open our eyes to truth. And that if there's anyone here this morning listening to this message and all of a sudden it has come to them, I'm not sure. Would you speak to them by your Spirit? I know you already are. They wouldn't be asking the question. Convince them of sin and of righteousness and judgment. and Hold the door open while it is still called today, while there's still time, and give them that opportunity to truly repent and respond and follow Jesus Christ. I ask it in His precious name. Amen.